Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us as we journey through the Silmarillion, exploring the deepest reaches of Tolkien's history, starting with the first song and ending with the defeat of Sauron's master, the Dark Lord Morgoth. So, uh, we're here to talk about uh, Valerian and its realms. Rob, are you on the yes or no side for this chapter? Uh, I have a mild uh, interest in its contents. Okay. I mean, I'm I'm kind of on the no side for most of the Silmarillion, so. <laughs> All right. I just I like stories as as opposed to summaries. Right. Um, but like of Larian and his realms is. I think it's interesting in how, as far as I know, this is the first time you get the idea that, like, landscape can be its own character, like, worth kind of highlighting, at least more explicitly. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I was curious because of what you put in the email, so. <laughs> I'm waiting for Josh to show up, then we can have, like, a hardcore... Well, so we're here to talk about of Valerian and its realms and of the Noldor in Valerian. And we can just kind of talk about whatever we feel like it. There's four of us. So let's go around the circle and tell me what you feel like talking about. Starting with Tristan. Um, let's say, okay. I kind of want to talk about Finrod. Mm. A little bit about Tugon, but mostly about Finrod and, like, Galadriel and his foresight. And also, Finrod's the thing with Thingol, where he's like, I'm not going to rat on the people who actually slaughtered everyone, because that would make them look bad. And his brother Angrod is like, hmm, I'm going to rat on those people who slaughtered everyone, because I don't feel like looking bad. And I'm kind of with Angrod on this one, I got, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Yeah, I want to talk about Finrod. Okay. How about you, Rob? Mm, I mean, I find um, like that whole relationship between I don't think I got ahead. Gladriel and Melian having their little chat um, and then like what happens with uh, uh, like the language of the Noldor um, as a result of like Thingol's sort of justified um, anger. So I find all that kind of stuff interesting. Okay, so it's my turn. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you had more to say. Um... So I discovered a thing funny yesterday, uh, reading stuff and going back and forth between text and map at 11 p.m. is not a good idea and makes you feel like so sleepy and so confused, even more than usual. Uh, but I guess I figured out where everyone is somehow, eventually. Um, so yeah, I'm a soft no one. Please don't make me do that again. But like, if you want to do that again, fine, I'll do it again. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
also like I liked like the million Galadriel chat because like million is like this something up and you know what's up but when Galadriel is like please don't make me talk about it anymore she's like fine like she's like okay fine I'll go bother someone else and <laughs> like even though like it's a big deal you know like Galadriel not wanting to talk about that is like or like or her brother actually brothers not wanting to talk about that and being like no what what, what would we have something to say about <laughs> the old dog and why they came here like I don't mm. like it's a big deal like it's it's not something you want to hide from the people who trust you you know like it changes the narrative a lot from like we've been like it's horrible we had a terrible time and blah 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 help us to or like I think I guess the first story was like we're here to help you I think and it's like uh, are you though are you really like, it changes a lot I can't blame uh single for reacting like he does because it's a big thing. That's like the last time you're going to say that about Thingol. <laughs> I mean, like, I've, okay, I, I kind of went to uh, spoiling uh, a rabbit hole of uh, what happened in Doyas and to Doyas. And so um, I know that that's probably going to be the last time, but like, I get it. It's not fun to discover that not only like not only that stuff have been hidden to you, but like stuff of quite the big political importance have been hidden to you. Like and that oh so the guy who's claimed to help us actually like murdered my brother and his people. It's like it changes the relationship. <laughs> tiny bit and I can understand that thing gold is like I don't want to deal with those guys at the moment and I from my own spoiler alert it's like for a long time he does not want to deal with them ever again so you know I don't blame him the, 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 the fact that he cuts everyone out is a big too far but the fact that he cuts a fair annoying out is understandable that's my argument. Yeah. Cool. Um, Josh, the question is, what do you want to talk about in these two chapters of Beleriand and its realms and of the Noldor and Beleriand? Well, seeing as I'm the only person who likes the chapter of Beleriand and its realms, I just want maps and lore, guys. Is that so much to ask? But also, I think it's really cool that um, even even in the middle of all this like deep history and everything, Tolkien still manages to make languages really matter. You know what he's about. He's here for the languages. It's great. Josh, I like of Valerian and its realms. I put of Valerian and its realms in my thesis. Well, that's nice. <laughs> we can be alone together. <laughs> That's I don't. I don't dislike it. Can that count? 
I have it on a similar level to the rest to the rest of the song really for the most part. So <laughs> I think like the only reason I don't feel I can fully interact with this chapter is because like as I said before you came, I interacted with it at past eleven PM and I was very tired and I I was very confused as a result of that. But like, if you want me to interact further into, with it and like discover pepit of joy in this chapter, please, I'm always happy to learn more about whatever there is to learn about landscaping in Tolkien. I feel like this chapter is best experienced, like read out loud to you while you're standing in front of a map of Valerian. <laughs> That's my big problem. I don't have a map of Valerian with me, like except the tiny one where I can't barely can read anything on. So I'll change that <laughs> eventually. <laughs> uh, so yeah, okay. So let's start with of Valerian and its realms, because um, I also want to talk about the events in the other one of the Noldor and Valerian because I agree that it was really interesting how like both the personal conflicts and how the personal conflicts were much wider conflicts at the same time. They were really good. Also, that's the most lines Melian is ever going to get in the entire Silmarillion. Not like that's all the lines she ever gets. Like that's the most in one place. That's probably more lines than all of her other lines combined, honestly. Um, she doesn't say a lot of things after that. Mm -hmm. Uh... But yeah, okay, so of Beleriand and its realms, um, yeah, at some point it would be cool to touch on the fact that like the most, the, the, the closest you kind of get to main characters in this chapter are the rivers and that's kind of neat. Um, but I also want Josh as the hardcore of Beleriand and its realms stan to open this conversation by talking about what he likes about of Valerian and its realms. I just really like maps, guys. I just think it's really cool to see how everything is arranged, where the people go, like, in relation to each other, how they get split up politically. Like, you can tell that all the Sons of Feanor stay together and kind of hide off the edge of the map from everybody else, because nobody really likes them. <laughs> Like that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and I think it's cool to see like strategically and tactically because they are like in the middle of a 500 year war with Morgoth, how they set up their realms for defenses as well. Like you can, you can definitely tell that if, if Morgoth's armies get through that northern section like into the main part of Beleriand it's mostly flat mostly plains they're going to be able to run all over that so all the defenses are up in the north to try and keep him packed in because if he gets through it's going to be a really bad time spoiler alert yeah okay um tactically speaking not not like not in terms of future knowledge, but just in terms of this chapter. 
logically, who's who do you think is the first person who dies? Um, the two main points that Morgoth can actually try to push through um, is in the Vale of Syrian where Oradreth is stationed, it looks like, and the eastern hills that are defended by Maedros and Maglor. So that's who I would expect to come under the first assault. Aren't the people living in Argalen, though? Like, it's also just plains. I don't think there's people living there because um, Thangordrim and Ang... And blah, 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 I can talk. Thangordrim and Angband aren't actually shown on the map, but I feel like they're not very far off the northern edge. So, while there are, like, riding parties and um, watches set up over Ardgallon to, like, keep an eye, I don't think there's anyone, like, seriously living there. It's noted that uh, Kelagorm and Corrupin and Corantia, maybe? Kelagorm and Corrupin at least ride out over those plains pretty regularly. But yeah, you... like, I think there are, like, horse keepers over there. I don't remember who's who's horse keeper. I think it's Fingolfin, but I don't know if it's like where he lives. But like, yeah, um, like there's this thing about horses being given like to say sorry, and yeah, and they... there, there's definitely a horse thing in here somewhere. Fingolfin yeah, lives in Hithlum, which is this ring of mountains here. Uh -huh. Though it it like joins to Ardgalen, but Ardgalen yeah. isn't part of his realm. Ardgalen isn't really part of anyone's realm. Okay, he's just You're there. you're right that it's it's Fingolfin. Um mm -hmm. it says uh their cavalry rode upon that plain even to the shadow of Thangoradrim. Um I think like heading out from their fortress of Ithil Sirion. Yeah. But I don't think but I think that's just like patrols. Okay. So I think the cavalry is gonna die first. Uh, <laughs> but as people <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it depends how fast they ride, but... I would tend to say that, well, Ordreth is one of the... holds the Vale of Syrian. Um, you can't really attack Ordreth without first taking care of Eiffel Syrian, because you open yourself up to a whole host of cavalry assaults from behind if you do. That's fair. You gotta uh, deal with that, so, or at least, uh, yeah, you gotta at least besiege that first. Yeah. You actually open yourself up to assault from two sides because you have Angrod and Agnor and Dorthonian. Yeah. As well. Yeah. But that's, that's rough. That's fast to hold. I think Dorthonian is really rough to try and deal with because it's very large, but also very difficult to actually assault because it's all like hilly and rocky and messy. Dorthonian is like, what the fuck happened, <laughs> geophysics-wise? <laughs> like, you just, you just, like, cut out an entire oval of mountains and then, like, drop them in the middle of a continent. Like, what is this nonsense? That is where Tulkas body-slammed Morgoth <laughs> when they were first taking care of him. Obviously. Yeah, so one of the things we were talking about was that, like, this map is fine, I guess, if you're looking at it in terms of um, 
the, the landscape was shaped entirely by gods punching each other at random, but it's this is even worse than Middle Earth when it comes to trying to figure out the plate tectonics of this thing. That's also what I thought I was like, like, Nevrast also doesn't make sense. It's like, how do you have, like, you, you have Bontain all around, but apparently a big marsh in the middle, and you manage to have absolutely no rivers? Like, what is this place? It's, it's insane. It's like, I'm pretty sure, like, any person who's, like, kind of interested in, like, how the lands are constructed is, like, looking at that and screaming in pain like this, oh. this is bullshit it could be that it used to be something of an inland sea um uh held in by the two mountain ranges and the hills behind for, stretching from the farther drangus to vinyamar that has then been slowly draining effectively so that what you're left with is a steadily declining marshland and small central lake um, but it wouldn't be getting a ton of rainfall. So that, that could be an explanation. But um, it does have some concerns with, say, bedrock. So I don't know. That's how I would tend to think of it. But I'm also exact, not exactly a geophysicist. <laughs> That's fair. They also talked about how, like, based on the map, it looks like Vinyamar has mountains on three sides. Not Vinyamar, sorry, Nevrast. Um, Vinyamar is the city. Uh, but based on the description, the mountains along the coast are not, act like, I don't think they're, we didn't think they were supposed to be mountains. We thought they were supposed to represent the cliffs that it describes. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't actually fix Eloise's problem, but we, we did look at that and we were like, oh, pretty sure those aren't supposed to be actual mountain range it was actually a chalk that would assist with the drainability mm -hmm. and and explain why it's it's a slowly draining inland sea yeah um the other thing that was kind of interesting that we talked about was the climate of valerian i don't know if you had any thoughts about that any of you guys I just remember, like, I think it was Nevrast that was told to be, like, have a nicer climate than everywhere else because it's not cold due to the mountains. But I don't remember, like, ex anything else. Um, yeah, there were, there were, like, two things that struck me. The first one was that I am pretty sure a lot of the climate of Beleriand is inspired by the Kalevala, um, which is the Finnish national epic, um, which a lot of the Silmarillion was inspired by, uh, especially the descriptions of Nevrast, because, okay, like, Finland is cold, yes, um, but the Kalevala probably comes from areas that are a bit warmer than the rest of Finland, and also Finland is very full of lakes and there are a lot of wetlands in it. And so this description of like wetlands reminds me a lot of Kalevala descriptions. And I feel like that's sort of the image Tolkien had in his head. Mm. Um, 
and also quite possibly for other parts. I just haven't really read enough of the Kalevala. So, like, you do get weird features. Like, you get quite a mishmash of features in the Kalevala. Like, you have ocean, and you have uh, wetlands, and you have a variety of things. Forests, lots of those. <laughs> you don't have mountains, though. So, th those, are, those are from somewhere else. Um... The other thing I was talking about that was... Talking just likes mountains. Yes, which is understandable. Okay, I was very much picturing, like, Hithlum and Dorthonian, Dorthonian especially, as, like, rocky mountains climate. Where, like, yeah, it's mm -hmm. nice in the summer, but it's, like, really cold and you get a lot of snow in the winter. Um, but then it occurred to me that Tolkien's definition of cold winters is probably not the same as mine. Yeah, that's quite fair. Yeah, he has been to the Swiss mountains. Okay. So he does understand that mountains are in fact not just slightly larger than average hills, which is a nice touch for a British writer. For sure, but did he go to the Swiss mountains in <laughs> In the winter? Yeah, in I don't the winter think or so. the summer? <laughs> and it talks about also wildflowers, so I would say spring summer. Okay. As someone who went to both, the Swiss mountain are not as terrible as the Rockies. Like, wow. as the Rockies we know here. Like, even in plain winter, you have, like, days above zeros. No, yeah. The European mountains are sad and weak. <laughs> like, they're just not as north as the Rockies, okay? What, what is this judgmental thing, okay? Okay? We'd stop here, young men. No, no, no. I will not mountains. take this slender. The Rockies are smaller than the Himalayas. Europeans don't understand what real mountains are like. Yep. But the Himalayas are also not European, so like that would not disprove yeah. his point. <laughs> like that's the point. The the point the point is that it's not just that we have the only good mountains and so we're judging Europe. It's that Europe has sad mountains. Yeah. <laughs> so we're judging. I mean, Europe has like the mountains in Norway's too. It's just no one cares about those because it's that cold. <laughs> and also it's Norway, so it's freaking expensive to just breathe there. <laughs> no, it's true. Like it's it's like even Finnish people and Swedish people who are also have expensive way of life find Norway expensive. So it's to tell you how much expensive it is. It's like, yes, you have nice tax and stuff, but tourism in Norway is expensive and you don't want to do that. So you go to the Swiss mountains. It's less expensive. Like okay, Switzerland is cheap. Some stuff in Finland is really expensive, yes. Like produce in winter, absurdly expensive. But also a lot of things are cheaper because healthcare is all free and university education for citizens is free. Yeah, no, but like what I mean is that like for Finnish people, it evens out. For tourists, it doesn't. You only get the expensive part of it <laughs> because you don't say enough to break your leg and it's like enjoy the like a healthcare or anything. You just <laughs> stay here to spend money and you do a lot. <laughs> and yeah, you can buy Switzerland from being the cheap part, but like the Alps also are in Italy, in Italy, France, and other places that are cheaper than Switzerland because they are in euros and. Well, I mean, like, euros for Canadian is, like, still expensive, sorry. But <laughs> for, like, the other European people, it's fine, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. 
Anyway. Mm. Anyway, yeah, I was thinking about how a lot of this, a lot of this chapter is super good if you're looking at it from an adaptation perspective. This chapter is so hacking useful if you're adapting the Silmarillion because it tells you like how many leagues there are between different points. So you can make a scale and then you can just establish how big everything is based on that scale and you'd like then determine how long it takes to travel, which is gonna guide plot points. Um, and that's really good. And it like, it tells you what the weather is like and what different regions are like and it's it's good okay i also don't have anything super smart to say about it but i really like the description of thangordrim um how like morgoth piled up these mountains out of the ashen slag of his subterranean furnaces and the vast refuse of his tunnelings um and they're basically like he's basically using them as chimney stacks like smoke comes out of the top of these mountains um and everything is like completely filthy like he spreads all of this filth on the plane in front of him um and it's gross and polluted and smoky um but then when the sun rises like the grass is like ooh fertilizer light and there's that description of um while angband was besieged and its gates shut, there were green things even among the pits and broken rocks before the doors of hell. It's pretty rad. Okay, it reminds me of like all mining, because like in Northern France we have a lot, we had a lot of those before everyone got kicked out. Uh, but basically what we have now, it's our only mountains, our coal refuse. Okay. And so it's like just a pile of coal that was not good enough and rocks and stuff and it, as you say it's excellent fertilizer they're full of greenery so that's why they look like mountain and we're so proud of them even though they all made up uh, <laughs> so the fake mountain is great um and that's actually how i imagined it and what i imagine also was like it was not fuming because it was used as a chimney but because of like it was continue piling up like refuse that was still hot from being extracted right. and that was the worms where the worms come from and also probably the fact that it's still also be like it's still coal ish it's just lower quality coal so it's still able to like burn a little bit i guess so that's how i imagined it but like much much bigger so what you're saying is thangoradrim is very slowly actively on fire yeah. Metal. Yeah. Like if you read, I think if you read uh, books like uh, Germinal, which is like by Zola, it's like about coal mining and stuff. I think it describes stuff like that. It's also very sad, but it's so good. Love it. So anyway, that's not the book we're reading right now. <laughs> that fits really well, like to the point that I feel like that may very well have been what Tolkien had. In yeah. Mind. Also, because I think good scientific education. Yeah, and also because like, it's Northern France, so it's very close to England, uh, if he moved out of England. <laughs> uh, it's like, if he comes, if you come from England, like to go to like Switzerland, you probably would go from through Calais, uh, like, like the small passa passage of sea there. So you would see it, you would see that. Um, and, or like the result of it, I don't know exactly when they closed, but like, 
I think some of the mines were still active in the 20th century. I'm not sure. Um, and I think it like I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know much about England and Britain in general, but like I wouldn't be surprised if they had colds too and like coal mines and like it's pretty common to have that when you have coal mines. You have those big yeah. pile of coal mounting. <laughs> Actually, a lot since the Industrial Revolution, a lot of the economy of Wales was built on coal mining because there was big areas of coal in the south of Wales. Yeah. Like that that was one of the main extraction points for like Britain was in South Wales and I guess probably across the little channel there in uh, Cornwall and Dover. Not Dover, Devon. Devon. And if I remember correctly, they have a lot of um, like landmarks that are that are based around that industry, um, like big kind of hills of earth um piled up from uh from the excavations but also like sinking land causing weird swamps and places where there weren't swamps oh like fun yeah yeah there's there's one place i, I uh, heard about recently where they have to have pumps running at all times um to keep a whole town from being flooded uh, because it's sunk just like a little bit below uh, the water table cheerful yeah <laughs> i find it really really cool that tolkien took this like natural feature that was probably familiar with him familiar to him and like is just is a feature of modern life and happens because when you make a coal mountain it continues to smolder and also the area around it is really well fertilized like I find it really interesting that he took this like sort of scientific reality of life and like elevated it to mythic importance and meaning right like he turned it into this epic struggle between like nature and darkness and like grass growing on the broken land in front of the gates of hell in like defiance of environmental devastation. Yeah. I think the name in English is spoiled tip. And like it's great when you like when you just leave them alone, they like become super fertile and like super green and yeah, they are big. Like it's like it's it's decades of of like piling up refuse of coal every day it's it's mountains like some 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 of those have like have like tiny like have become like ski hills for like all day round all year round because it's not with snow that you ski on that i don't know how they make it but like that's why you ski when you have no mountains <laughs> yeah but yeah, they're like actual mountains. And if you actually want to do like some sports and like hiking, that's where you go. Or you bike to actual mountains, but like that's further away. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Neat. So I agree, the cold is probably not Rocky Mountain cold. Or like Canadian Rocky Mountain cold. It's probably like maybe South US Rocky Mountain cold. 
Listen, I can't help it. If someone was like, adapt this, I would be like, okay, Hithlum surrounded by mountains, air is cool, winter is cold, and then I would just be, it would be Rocky's cold. Yeah, I can't blame you though. I did the same. And I know that it's probably not, like, I, I know all the mountains. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it has to be cold. But no, I think, like, the, the Canadian cold is more like El Caraxi. That's so, so like, he, he heard about it and he was like, oh, I know what I, I know what they have to cross. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. My kitten is whining for attention. My cat has kept screaming for attention but as soon as you give her attention she screams for like stopping stopping it so you know <laughs> we don't really know exactly what's wrong with her um okay so any thoughts on the rivers in this chapter syrian galleon they are he's they are he's yeah and I find that interesting because, uh, okay, there's two translations of river in French. You have rivière and fleuve. And rivière is feminine and fleuve is masculine. And fleuve, like the big difference is that the, like, the feminine word is for like rivers that uh, go into other rivers and the fleuves are the rivers that go into the sea. And so I was like, so random. I was like, yes, they are his. It's weird, but they are his. And I get why. <laughs> and I'm not sure it's why he did that. But for me, it made sense. It's like, yeah, you have like the tiny rivers who are she's, and that they are big rivers who are his. Anyway. I hadn't even thought of that. But yeah, you're right. All of the rivers that are he would be he in French. That's so fun. I mean, probably other languages too, but I don't know. Fair enough. But yeah, no, because. They're the big rivers that flow into the sea. That's great. <laughs> um, other thoughts on the rivers or the pronouns of the rivers? I don't know what the geophysicist would say of like Syrian going under the mountains. I mean, I guess it happens, but I can't think of anything like a, an actual like jack, big river like Syrian going into a mountain in real life, but maybe it's possible. It's just a bit confusing. Fair. I like, I like how the, okay, I, what I really like about this and what I wrote about in my thesis is that I like how the rivers are people without being personified. So they're treated as people in the sense of being like individual distinct named entities that have different personalities, um, but they're not personified. So they're not having like human traits shoved onto them. They're still rivers. Um, it's just, there's a lot of really lovely detail about how they're different, right? Um, where's that description of Narog? Uh, yeah, 
like Narog like flowed over the rapids but had no fall. Um, Syrian like fell from the north in a mighty fall below the mirrors and then he plunged suddenly underground. So the combination of like really active verbs and the pronouns very much make the rivers like agents, right? Like they're they're doing things, they're taking actions. They're not just like a soulless stream of water that erodes rock because it's what it does. Um, yeah. I only have one question about Syrian and like Tolkien. Uh, why would the Delta be empty of all living things have birds of the sea? Because I'm sorry, I think deltas are like the most full of life places in any river. It's like you have all the amphibians, you have all the mosquitoes, you have all like you have horses, you have like so many shit that live in there because it's tiny ecosystems. It's insane. It's like, why would you empty it of all life? I'm pretty sure that's a thing that has the most life in whole like universe. What are you talking about, Tolkien? So but yeah, I was a bit like, eh? That's interesting. Like, I definitely didn't interpret that so literally that it meant, like, there was nothing there except birds. Like, I was assuming that that meant there had to be, like, the ecosystem surrounding the birds as well. Because otherwise, what do they eat? But... Yeah, yeah, like, I mean, I know he doesn't mention that much bugs and stuff. And I, I kind of assume that, yes, they were plants. But I was a bit surprised. Like, you know, usually when Tolkien has an occasion to talk about plants he texts it he writes it and he continue with it so like i was a bit like no plants or like no plant mention interesting so like i still assume there were plants for the birds but like it doesn't even seem like the birds that live there because the birds of the sea so like they would like come around because it's close to the sea uh rather than live there and also like even without that, like deltas also attract animals talking talk about like mostly mammifers, but like if just like um, like I know it's not Europe, it's very remote from like uh England and like but like the Nile the delta of the Nile, Nile, I don't Nile. remember who Nile. Um like that's basically where people lived and like the like the place that were like flooded yearly like that was a great place to be the delta because that's where like all like the birds the hippopotamus like well maybe not that because that's not fun but whatever like (laughs) (laughs) no you don't want to go near them but like you know like big life lives in delta and in France, in the Delta of the Rhone, you have like horses and cows being raised there half wild, which it's like, it always confuses me. It's like, because I always forget there's like this tiny ecosystem in France that I forget every time. But yes, there are like ranchers in France in this tiny Delta. And I'm like, this is cool, you know? Anyway, but yeah, like it struck me that the Delta was described as like empty of most life because that's absolutely not how i picture deltas in general so i don't know what happened in the syrian like maybe the this eh, eh. could be that um 
if it's a really marshy delta, it could be too wet and still too far too cold to support some of the more major life that you'd see around, say, the Nile Delta. Um, the, because generally, like, major aquatic or semi-aquatic life doesn't do that well in colder climates. So, I mean, that said, you also don't really get deltas as much in those kind of climates. I mean, um, I'm trying to see, like, because he, it's quite south of the map. And it's also, like, I'm trying to see, like, based on where Eredluen is, I'm trying to kind of figure out where it would be compared to Middle Earth, because it looks to me like it's more like Rohan High. And Rohan is not that, like, it's not, yeah, it's not that cold. I think like, like, and I, I was talking like, it might be Nile hot, like Gondor would be, but it might like, it would be still like this uh, South of France warm, I imagine, maybe a tiny bit up, but I'm not, not that I'm not completely sure of how the scale of Beleriand compares to the scale of Middle Earth, That's fair. but I feel like most of Beleriand is like, basically on the same latitude as most of the Shire slash Eriador. Mm. So I would okay. expect it to be approximately the same climate with changes for the fact that most of Eriador is protected by the Blue Mountains from the sea weather, and this is not. Mm. So, okay, from what I from what I recall, because I looked into this at some point, and I've seen people's composite maps, but I don't didn't think to bring that with me today um but okay so from what i recall uh like at first it seems like valerian is just fully like this whole chunk is just dead west of middle earth that's not true it's also it's northwest of middle earth like it's i don't know if it's a whole lot more north but it is more north so, so my estimation, assuming that the, there's not a road on there, that the dwarf road goes through the first, not the first of Drangus, the uh, Bay of Beleriand. Nope. I'm going to be back in a minute. <laughs> Tristan uh, goes to look at the map on the wall. The Great Havens. Um, would, be, would put the mouths of the Syrian about on parallel with Lorien. But that's... So, definitely further north than Rohan, but still, you know, that's a region weather, so. Yeah, which, like, make, like, from what I understand, like, the north of Beleriand is farther north than any, like, well, everything in Beleriand is just slightly farther north as well as west, so, like, the north is, high, is farther north than anything in Middle Earth. Which would kind of make sense if Tolkien is envisioning like Finlandish weather for like Nevrast and Hithlum. And like England for the Shire and the Mediterranean, like Italy for northern Gondor. Okay, fine. Yeah. I like I, I found a map that has those two together. Okay. And yeah, it seems that it's uh, like 
kind of like a region Moria Heights, a bit yeah. south of Moria. So yeah, it'd be it would be colder. Now I want to know like if they are like cold deltas and stuff. Um so many research topics. That immediately comes to my mind is the St. Lawrence Seaway, which isn't a delta at all. <laughs> Great, thanks. Thanks. You're welcome. I'm I'm here to, you know, not help. <laughs> okay, um, while Eloise goes down a research rabbit hole. What, what do we want to move on to? Uh, this is also the chapter where we find out that even though the elves fortified the ocean just in case, like literally at no point ever do any servant of Morgoth try to go onto the sea. The sea where Ulmo is? Hmm, maybe not. Yeah, the sea where Ulmo actively is rather than being like sequestered behind mountains. Yeah. Just one ship of orcs goes out and Ulmo is just like, flick! <laughs> See, now, tactical Ulmo would be like, yeah, the first ship of orcs is free. Well, yeah. <laughs> and everyone is like, aha, the sea is our way forward. And then Morgoth sends a fleet and Ulmo is like, Arse? Go. <laughs> and Arce is like, play time! Smash! But yeah, no, instead it's just no one ever tries because they, they're scared. Yeah. Probably because water is magic. Water is magic. Water is sacred. But yeah, anyway, hopefully we've established that uh, at this point, um, the Syrian and Narag and Taglin and the other rivers um, have a heroic presence in this epic. And so do the source waters and the lakes and also uh, Ard Galen. Yeah. This is going to be important later in the Silmarillion, but like not really to us, just to me personally, because I wrote in my thesis that like the fall of great kings and the fall of cities is like roughly on, well, is on par with the fall of like plains, the defilement of wells and the fall of rivers. Yeah. Yeah, there, there is frequent mention of the defilement of plains and wells and things. It comes up a lot. Yeah. All right, I got to run. Okay, bye. bye. Um, <laughs> okay, my rabbit hole is absolutely amazing. I love it. Uh, <laughs> um, but apparently, so... I found a delta that is quite north. It's actually in Alberta, uh, but, and it's uh, even in North Alberta. So it's like probably northern than, most, most, more north than the Syrians delta. Uh, and from a quick Wikipedia read, it's, um, probably less full less densely inhabited than um the deltas i was thinking of um so ish so basically it's uh 
staging area for migration of birds. A lot of birds live there, uh, mostly water birds, obviously. Um, I mean, it still goes to up to 1 million inhabitants when everyone is migrating there. So like, it's not empty of life. And around the Delta, the grass and sedge meadows in this area also provide habitat for several thousand wood and plain bison, which are like the big animals, but like it's not in the Delta. So like, I'll give that to Tolkien. The focus on birds does kind of make sense. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of yeah. Like, from what I knew of Delta before, like, it makes sense that birds are like the most interested in Deltas because they don't have to stay in the wet mud all the time. But they also also like it when, so yeah. But he said seabirds. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Fair enough. Okay, all right, the final point that I want to make in this chapter is that um, the Noldor are specifically not supposed to settle in Beleriand, and with the exception of Finrod and Nargothrond, like, they don't, right? Beleriand is not, so like, Lothlan, which is where Mythos and Maglor are, is not considered part of Beleriand. Neither is Thargelion on the other side of Gelion. Um, anything like north of the mountains, so like Hithlum and Dorthonian, are not considered part of Valerian. So. That was something that I kind of hadn't realized before, even though it's made pretty clear in the text. So I thought I would bring it up. Um, and also, uh, when we were talking about who's going to get attacked or whatever, uh, Mydros moved himself and his brothers to the shittiest possible places on purpose. Yep. Yeah, because who wants out? What, by death? Yes. I who mean- wants out of this oath, and if death is the way, that's the way. Possible. Also, I think, like, there's that. There's also the whole, like, spirit of reconciliation thing. Like, we just made peace with Fingen. We're going to get out of your hair and try to occupy my shitty brothers by putting them somewhere where they'll be constantly at war. Yep. That's fair. But, yeah. I think you can also read this as, like, a personal penance sort of thing. Whereas, like, Angrod and Agnor have shitty lands because they want to fight and like the sons of Feanor have shitty lands, I think partly because they want to fight and partly because they want to keep peace with the rest of the Noldor. So like, we'll go all the way over here, really far from you guys, where we'll be constantly fighting. I think some of them have terrible lands because Mydros told them to get away. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, does anybody else have comments on of Beleriand and its realms before we move to of the Noldor and Beleriand? I had no idea that all the stuff you said was not part of Valerian is not part of Valerian. Yeah, I only understood that in in this chapter. Because before like before when like they say uh they kinda go against like what uh Thingol said 
of like, hey, don't go in Bellerin, you can have like the land I don't care about. And um, And yeah, I read this like three or four times, and this is the first time I went, oh, huh, oh, that's that's where the borders of Valerian actually are. Yeah, it's like we keep the good lands, and here has the shitty lands. Um, but I mean, I can't blame them. It's cold. It's the spiders, orcs. That keeps the southern lens too. Spiders and goblins and orcs. Oh my. <laughs> okay, um, in that case, I think we should move on to chapter 15 of the Noldor in Valerian, which is where our political intrigue and stuff starts. Before the political intrigue, we should talk about Targon, because he does stuff. That, that's my conversation topic. Turgon does stuff. What are your thoughts? Sorry, I need that question again. I was um, distracted. All good. My question is, Turgon does stuff. What are your thoughts? Specifically, what Turgon does is he has some conversations directly with Ulmo, so that's chill. Um, and he starts to build a hidden realm and then fully builds a hidden realm and eventually moves in there. I mean, if Ulmo tells you to do it, you better do it. Ulmo tells him some really specific stuff in this chapter that with, you know, spoiler alert, Turgon doesn't really listen to and it's rather frustrating because Ulmo is very, very specific. Yeah, he gets like 95% of the way there, but then that 5% he misses is really kind of crucial in not having <laughs> everyone die. Yeah. Also, we were kind of laughing at the fact that um, Ulmo is like, also, here are the precise body measurements of this man who's going to be born like a thousand years from now. Like, that's actually really funny. Ulmo was paying attention during the turns hot bot to us, hot bod part of the song. <laughs> yes. it, it is actually kind of weird though like the fact that they don't really have knowledge of the children of Iluvatar but he's got this future human's body measurements okay let's be fair this future human <laughs> is basically elf sized He's like elves, but like almost as big as Turin and shredded. Depending on what version you read, like in Book of Lost Tales, Tour is like way bigger than all of the elves. Okay, yeah, but that's when elves were smaller too, so. It is, but like maybe Ulmo was just like, wow, that guy's really big. What a big man. But isn't, no, think Turin's oh, like, the second also... tallest elf? Yeah, Turgon is Turgon is the tallest of like all children of Iluvatar except for Fingal. Yeah. So, so like that no longer applies. Presumably in Lost Hills, Ulmo was like, "Here are the exact measurements," and Turgon was like, "Who is this fucking giant?" <laughs> but like in this version, 
Turgon is like eight feet tall, so presumably Olmo is like, here are the exact measurements, and, and Turgon's like, like, oh, oh slightly smaller now. than me. Okay. <laughs> Which I don't know. I love because I see so many interpretations of like elf woman as um, like small and waif like in. <laughs> Tolkien fan art and I'm like no listen <laughs> listen Galadriel is tall and she's towering <laughs> over Lily everyone yeah so many of the women in the Silmarillion are explicitly tall like Galadriel is very tall Luthien has the tallest parents ever so I assume she's a full foot taller than Baron um Idril, you know, might be exactly the same height as Tuor because Tuor is exceptionally tall, but Idril's dad is the second tallest person to ever live. Um, yeah, but she's adopted, so. <laughs> okay, listen. <laughs> Not going there, sorry. Not going there. Anyway, this is like a really obscure fan theory, so moving on. Um, I want to know. Okay, a really obscure fan theory is that Turgon is gay which like <laughs> doesn't sound like much of a fan theory um turgon's wife wife turgon's spouse gets a name like once oh is it everything really obscurely in like the crossing of the hulkaraxe and the name is elenway which has way as an ending which is usually an explicitly masculine ending like in Veronway or Aeonway or Monway so we like read that and we were like <laughs> okay <laughs> well come on that's not that's exactly what we were like <laughs> probably but um yeah so I read that so anyway we read that and we were like oh okay that's that's definitely gay um, I think we like, I don't know if it was like, uh, Cinderellian book tale, last tale, book of last tale, uh, book study, but we, uh, expanded on this and, uh, we talked about the fact that Elenwe, that's what you say, yeah. is actually, uh, also a trans man. And that's why the daughter is actually the daughter. Oh, I see. Okay. You, yeah. you two, you remember. The other it two came remember. up in Book of Lost Tales, so I was there. Yeah. Okay, okay. Nice. I remember this conversation. It's like... His daughter is not adopted. Possibly. Yeah. Okay, I see. So she's really tall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was the point. The point wasn't... The entire point of this was Idril is tall. <laughs> That's good. a little bit bad. Um, but yeah, and also Neonor, who is Turin's sister slash accidental wife um is at one point <laughs> well, sorry spoilers i mean um, i know i was there doing the <laughs> yeah murder mystery where like someone had to run screaming through the room because they wow. discovered something they didn't want to hear about <laughs> he didn't have to he chose to and it was a wonderful acting choice okay um yeah anyway uh yeah, Neonor is described as being as tall as the elf men that she at one point disguises herself as. So, fan art, catch up. <laughs> I want statuesque women. 
stat. I want Baron literally looking up to watch Luthien. Looking up to us, Lucy. Yeah. I want, but also I want the juxtaposition with Baron looking down under the flower petal or whatever at Tiny Luthien. <laughs> uh... <laughs> I want Baron walking into the clearing, seeing someone dancing and being like, that is literally the tallest woman I have ever seen. Oh my goodness. No, you, know, you know what would be great is that he sees her so far away. He's like, oh my God, she's beautiful. And then he comes closer and she's like, <laughs> She's, she's, she's very tall. tall. <laughs> it's like, wait, was I that tall? <laughs> yeah. That could be fun. I mean, the flowers could be really huge too. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> Baron is like, Baron wow. sees this woman dancing under a flower. So small, comes closer. So far away, comes closer. <laughs> so tall. What a big flower. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Luthien dancing under the sunflowers. <laughs> anyway, tall tall women deserve to feel appreciated and beautiful, and I feel like Tolkien adaptations is a great way to go for that. Because they are canonically yep. very tall. I don't know, Morwen is also very tall. Like, Neonor is very tall because of her mother's side of the family, not like her father. Well, that was not a good casting show then, because I'm very small. <laughs> Like, I'm, like, very average for a human today. So I'm small for an elf back then, or, like, whoever in Beleriand is. I am not... Tristan and I would like to cosplay Hurin and Morwen, but I would need, like, seven-inch heels. That's fine. Stilts. Yeah. And not still walkers. Want me to hook you up? Okay, cool. Um, I'm gonna leave you guys to talk about the actual content of of the Nolor and Valerian because my ear is bleeding. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> is that like less concerning than it sounds? Probably. I don't honestly know. <laughs> I mean. If it's concerning, very concerning, we'll know in two minutes. Like, when Tristan has blood. to rush out of the of the camera and be like, okay, book is over for me too. Bye, I'm taking <laughs> her to the hospital. <laughs> she just passed out. It's fine. So I guess we're going to talk about blood leaking out of the inner ear because that would be a problem. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> That's a problem when none of us are like anywhere, nowhere, like body science like well theoretically what does the book say uh so the rest of the Noldor and Beleriand um have we actually talked about Tagon much yet I mean mm -hmm. his spell is Ulmo and he doesn't listen to the most important things that Ulmo said he listened to all the nice things he said but like when Ulmo was like you, you know, you might want to be careful because it's like this not cool thing that's going to happen. Tugman was like, sorry, I was like, not listening. Yeah. Don't repeat it, please. Can I? So it's, it, what, what I find interesting is that Tugan is the one that Omo has to go to a second time because we've already had the uh, Tugan and Finrod go and get dreams. 
part. That was last week, or two weeks ago, I guess, but, right? Yep. And like, Finrod is like, hmm, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna get on that, and goes and builds Nagathond, and Tugon is like, meh, I'll get to it. <laughs> and so Omo shows up and is like, hey, hey, you're gonna, you're gonna do that thing? You know, the thing that I told you to do? And that's when Togon finally gets on it. Just imagine procrastinating so hard that a god has to kick your ass. <laughs> Again? Stop, stop coming. Like, no, because like the first time Ulmo came in dreams, you know? Yeah. It's like, you know, like, it's, it's like a... <laughs> like, I feel like the story is a bit like getting a message and getting a visit. So it's like, you know, like at first you had like... Uno send like either like a voicemail or uh, a message to like Finrod and Turgon. And Finrod was like, oh, good idea. I'm going to work on that. And like Turgon just left it on read. Yeah. For like so long that Ulmo was like, I'm going to pay him a visit just to make sure he like actually read it and did not forget about it. And Turgon's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to get to it. Which message are we talking about again? And Ulmo's like, I swear to. And he's like, fine, okay, I'm giving you the plan. I'm giving you the measurement of this guy. I'm giving you like exact position. I'm giving you all the power to protect it by myself. And now here's what you do. And you do it. And he like looks at Turgen in the eye. He's like, you do it. And Turgen is eventually like, I mean, I guess you're still in my house and you don't seem to be living in time soon. So <laughs> You're going to remind me that I'm going to have to do it every day until I actually do it. So, like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Omo to tug on. This is exactly how big the arc should be. <laughs> oh, there's people all around me. I'm here for a while since my supervisor never called us to meet him. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, we've... What, what, oh, yeah, then we get into Galadriel and Melian having their uh, chat. Their friendly, friendly chat. It's really politically interesting, and it's also the only reason this book passes the Bechdel test. Squeaks by because of the parts of this conversation that aren't directly about men. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, uh, yeah, I don't know how I feel about Galadriel's choices, but I guess she also hasn't had time to learn to be wise yet. Like, that'll come later. So we're kind of seeing a bit of a character arc here. Yeah, like, she is still, in theory, rash young Galadriel, but even though you don't this is also, I like this because it's kind of the only place that you see Melian's, like, sort of mentorship in action, right? Like, she respects Galadriel's decisions, and she respects Galadriel, even though she's still kind of impressing upon her the importance of this whole situation. Also, you can contrast the way this conversation goes between Galadriel and Melian, i.e. very well with the way the conversation between Melian's husband and Galadriel's brother goes, which is really badly. Yep. 
Straight up, yeah. Um. I like. I won't go into the gender thing yet because it might be preposterous, but uh, <laughs> like I will at least mention a character approach. It's like, um, and it's not only in the cap for in the characters of those conversations. It's like it's kind of spread around. Like a lot of the female character are presented as like. say that like it, like in the conversation with Galadriel and, and Melian you have like we want to talk like I, I want to talk I, I want this conversation to happen I want this conversation to happen well and like not taking things personally but a lot of the, like the, in the other it's like, it's like Thingol doesn't only get mad because it's dangerous for his realm that he doesn't know that the people who came here did not came as potential allies, they came as exiles because they killed other people. It's just like politically big. Uh, but he takes that like more than, oh, there is new information that I need to process to restart like, reconsider my relationship with those people he's like this is a personal insult to him that it's been hidden and yes not cool but like if we want to talk about personal like the son of enough in way in like complicated situation they just had like they had a very fragile piece with a fair which remains very fragile because Fëanorian character, uh, kind of fiery and bomb. Uh, and like, they had also a very fragile piece with Thingol because he was like, I trust you because you're my nephew, but that's basically all. Like, on principle, I don't want any of you and your people here and like your friends. So, like it's a very thin line to thread politically and personally and like i'm not saying like i don't know if the son of enough and did a good choice a good choice i don't think entirely but like considering thingol's character of like apparently taking things so personally and so intensely like yeah, I would have been questioning whether telling him the whole thing would be a good idea to, you know? So Yeah, it's one of the other things that's unclear in here is how much, where are these rumors about why the Noldor showed up coming from? Because it seems a little unlikely for the Noldor to en masse to just be like, hey, we're going to lie. Cool? Cool. Like, some of the Fenorians might, but at the same point in time, none of them seem to be ashamed of what they've done. So it, it's, it's a little bit hard for me to see 
this as like Noldor propaganda for once in this Silmarillion. I think that something isn't Noldor propaganda. And it's why the Noldor showed up in Beleriand. Because it's pretty easy for me to construct the idea that the Noldor came as the Sindar were having this pretty losing battle with the um, with Morgoth. Noldor show up and um, really help. And they're like, ah, you must be sent by the, from the, by the Valar. The Valar who, you know, are over there, as we know, and had you, the elves, and who let Morgoth come across. You must be their emissaries to help us. That's a pretty logical construct from the Sindar perspective. So I don't know if it's reasonable for Thingol to, in, in some ways, place the blame on the Noldor for being like, hey, you deceived me. And the Noldor are like, we didn't tell you all of the things, but like, that's not... I wouldn't go around talking about the people that I've murdered either, generally. So it's it's politically ill-advised to talk about that. And like, sure, you didn't find out about it in the best way, but I don't think that's on the Noldor, really. I don't know. Okay, I think I, so I figured out the relevant context. It's from of the return of the Noldor. So first, what we get is when... Uh, like when the the glorious battle is fought or whatever, you get then all the elves of Beleriand were filled with wonder and with hope at the coming of their mighty kindred who thus returned unlooked for from the west in the very hour of their need, believing indeed at first that they came as emissaries of the Valar to deliver them. So that is not something that the Noldor deliberately spread. However, uh, your your deception does actually start not between anybody else, but it does start between um, Angrod and Thingol, because it, it's it's I, I not like that. active deception. Sorry. Um. So Angrod, son of Finarfin, was the first of the exiles to come to Menegroth as messenger of his brother Finrod, and he spoke along with the king telling him of the deeds of the Noldor in the north and of their numbers and of the ordering of their force, but being true and wise-hearted and thinking all griefs now forgiven, he spoke no word concerning the kinslaying, nor of the manner of the exile of the Noldor and the oath of Feanor. So, Not an unreasonable choice. Yeah, so that, that's your context. Yeah. Make of it what you will. I mean, like, okay, this thing is um like it's not entirely ill-advised to not mention how exactly everything went down and where the lay blame lays particularly because as mentioned in this extract it's like it's new peace with people who have a fiery temper so it's fragile piece, as far as we know, um, and and also like it's introducing yourself to someone who kind of trust you, but not really. So you don't want to show the bad thing first. Um, however, like not that like, you could say something about like hey your brother's dead 
flies away. Like gloss over, like, okay, it would still be deception to gloss over how he's dead, but you couldn't mention it. Like, it's like, you know, there's this back, like, like the whole, like, like I think there were no way, like, okay. So it was like either deception or bad mouthing and like negative presentation of Ronaldo, which was not very politically good advice at the moment. But the thing is that they kept hiding it. And it's like, um, that once a trust is built, once like they are assured that the peace with the Fanorian is solid, the like the trust of Thingol is solid, like it would be another show of trust or well-deserved trust to come to him and be like, so there was this little thing we didn't mention at first because it was at first, but confession time. Whereas here, what happens is that Melian figures it out, then tell Thingol, and Thingol's like, oh yeah, about this bag of candy I had, I found under your bed that was not supposed to be there, and you told me that was specifically not there. Okay, so... What's that about? A couple things. First of all, there's no indication that Olway is in fact dead. Yeah, that's fair. Um, Isn't it that called a Kingslaying, though? The Aqualonde stuff? He... He is of the Teleri, and Teleri were slaughtered at the Kingslaying, but, like, Olway was not is not indicated as among the dead. Okay, fair. Um, so it's called the Kinslaying because it's elves killing elves. Yeah. Not oh, I read. Okay, my brain autocorrected king slaying, not ah, king slaying. Fair enough. Sorry, no. my bad. <laughs> um, but at the same point in time, I would, I would still, like, Thingle doesn't seem to ask. I don't know. Yeah, no, I like... I think Angwad could have done anything better diplomatically than what he did. Not at first. It's impressive, because he's an angry boy. <laughs> no, like, I think at first he had a good call of, like, saying, let's not talk about that right now, but, like, the thing is, like, the news doesn't land the same when it's like, oh, yeah, we discovered this thing and versus like, hey, uh, I want to talk to you about a thing I'm not proud of that happened and that is kind of important information anyway, you know? It's like, like in any relationship, be they like personal or political, like, yes, of course you start with like the good things about you, but once the trust and the relationship is established, it's, better when like you're the one talking about the big secret the big stuff rather than the other one figuring it out by others around you two talking about it because like it's a show of trust to be vulnerable and to be able to 
show that there are moments that are not like that you're not absolutely perfect and that you fucked up and like yes it's a big fuck up but like you fucked up anyway and that you are ready to risk the relationship to be trustful so the other thing i'm not sure which version it is i'm pretty sure there's a version where the house of finarfin is explicitly said not to take part in the kinslaying that's in here that's in here yeah. okay so it also the other point that i would last point that i would make about this is that it's not really Angrod's story to tell. Like, he doesn't want to be the guy who's like, hey, my kinsman did these bad things when it wasn't him and it wasn't any of the people who come visit Thingol. It, it's pretty awkward to be like, hey, so my cousins, the worst, am I right? Even... Uh, they've done terrible things. There's no questioning that. But it doesn't feel like it's Angrod's place to talk about that to Thingol. I also have some thoughts. Um, namely that uh, what you guys were saying, um, I think, ties into why Tolkien purposefully mentions that uh, the... Um, like the rumors that set all of this stuff in motion were probably spread by Morgoth. Um, because th there, there are a couple ways that this could have worked out. Um, first of all, you know, Thingol doesn't find out through rumors, right? He either doesn't find out at all, or he finds out because his wife is able to give him the full story. And maybe, you know, his first reaction happens only around Melian and not around everyone else. That's something Thingol should get in the habit of doing and he never does. Um, and, or number two, uh, he doesn't find out, but eventually the Noldor approach him and tell him. Which is, like, to be fair, unlikely to happen, but still, as you discussed, probably a better outcome than, you know, him finding out without them telling him. Um, but, it's, but it's interesting because the fact that neither of these is what happens is in some way attributed to Melkor trying to spread dissent. And the fact that this does actually play into Melkor's hands makes Finrod's decision really interesting to me because... Like, before Finrod's younger brother, which is possibly relevant in terms of, you know, who you're supposed to be following in the family, like, doesn't follow his lead and blurts all of this out to Thingol, um, Finrod's decision was essentially to let Thingol think that he is a kinslayer in order to preserve the, like, unity between the Noldor. Because the only way that he can, like, it's pointed out that he's thinking about the fact that the only way he can absolve himself is to be like, oh, we're not, but the other Noldor are. And he explicitly doesn't want to do that. Which is such an interesting choice to me, because on the one hand, my mind is like, ah yes, Finrod, martyr complex as per usual. Um, but on the other hand, like, 
he's trying to not have there be sides. Because as soon as you say, we weren't involved in the Kinslang, but they were, you have created a rift between the Noldor that Morgoth can exploit, and you've set up sides where the House of Finarfin is on Thingol's side, and the other Noldor are on a different side. Yeah. Yeah, but... And that the thing also, is that... in theory, exacerbates the conflict between Fingal and the House of Feanor later. Yeah. You also, at this point, what Fingal has is pretty much unconfirmed rumor. Like, Melian doesn't get anything solid from Galadriel. Um, and so, what Thingol has to go on is rumors spread by Morgoth. So, we kind of get, with, with Finrod, we get a little bit of Prisoner's Dilemma. If nobody talks, Thingol doesn't actually know for sure. Mm-hmm. And Angrod is like, hmm, I refuse to be called names. That's true. I mean, there's there's a different perspective on it there. That's true. If nobody talks, then they are suspected but not confirmed to be Kinslayers. Yeah. But if someone talks, like, the story has to be out. (laughs) As long as no one in this multi-million person army ever lets on (laughs) that we did a terrible thing, our secret will be safe. (laughs) Perfect. Flawless plan. The problem is this movie don't particularly confirm being that terrible, and therefore... Coffin. <laughs> I think, like... Like, and I know some of the Feanorian have, like, a redemption arc, or, like, sort of a redemption arc, uh, and some of them have, like, a worsening arc. Uh, so, like, it's hard to put all the Feanorian in one bag, Except for like this little moment where like they kind of swore an oath on their death and their afterlife that they will say for call to like literally everyone. Yeah. For like jewels. Yeah. So like <laughs> I understand is like this uh like family loyalty that the son felt to the father. But, you know, the family, we loyalty could have been like, yeah, like, we can help you if you want to go this route, but we won't take the full oath because you also included good people and allies in that. So, or potential allies in that. So, yeah. And like, they made this oath, if I remember correctly, after this kin slaying thing. So it's like... No, that was before. This was before? Okay, so fair enough. No, not fair enough. What the fuck, really? <laughs> uh, like... It's... I understand Finrod wants to keep the peace. But he's keeping the peace at the price of... Like... I think an injustice like it's like the Tillery literally just said maybe calm down uh I don't think you deserve our boat and they got murdered for that 
like excuse you yeah. they didn't even touch a silmaril like they didn't even breathe on a silmaril they just said maybe calm down and think again whosoever hinders us in any way um <laughs> yeah I yeah it is very like morally gray to not tell Thingol that people who murdered his like distant cousins are the people who are now like asking for land in the general vicinity of his kingdom. Yeah, and also like maybe telling him about the king slain is like complicated and like maybe it's not, but like the oath is a big deal to know about the Feanorian. It's like, yes, the Noldo are not in, all included in that, but like there is this little thing of like, they go crazy for those three jewels and and they do bad thing as a result of it like terrible thing and maybe it's not finrod's and his brother's place to tell about like the kinslaying and stuff and i understand that but not telling about the oath like when they know the consequences of it several time over yeah. yeah it's... I feel like if you're trying to balance those two things, then the right, right, quote unquote, course of action in this situation is probably to answer Ask Fingen and Mytheros. Yeah. Mytheros, because Fingolfin is still alive at this point. Yeah. The other thing, the other interesting thing that comes out of the conversation, sorry, to quickly move on to a different, <laughs> slightly different topic, uh, Galadriel and Melian, have a conversation about the uh, Selmwells? <laughs> this is gonna come back later, because <laughs> Thingol finds out about the Selmwells, and this is good for everyone, really. <laughs> okay. I mean, drastically. <laughs> Anyone finding Selmwells but the Feanorian is a bad thing. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. There's an oath about that. Frankly, the Feanorian is finding Selmwells. Also, we'll get to how that works out. But... Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah, pretty remember bad. that whole part where Varda hallowed them so that if you did evil, you can't touch them anymore? Yeah, I remember that part. Nope, no recollection. It's probably gonna be fine, right? Fine. But yeah, like, I think, like, <sighs> Finrod not wanting to like spread for the descent is misguided because the descent does not originate from him and is not fed by him in any case. Like, yes, him telling to think all about like the Kinslaying would be fitting into the descent. I agree with that. But as you said, like one of the costs of action would be like, hey, you might want to talk about the one you don't want in your kingdom about that because that's not really our story to tell. Um, but yes, yeah, they do have big information for you. Yeah, have a nice talk. Yeah. <laughs> gonna go it's so gonna go well. well. <laughs> it's fine. Um, yeah, and there's like also like I don't know. So it's 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 a difficult matter as to who's as to what Finrod and 
Ragnarok should do here and who's kind of in the right if there is a right. There's a lot of gray morality going on around here because, you know, things are really hard when, you know, your cousins just killed some people. That's awkward, man. Wow. Well, I mean, it's more exactly this side of the family killed this other side of the family. Yeah. In the case of Finafin's kids. <laughs> It's like, my cousin on my dad's side killed my cousin on my mom's side. And my cousin... So, family it? dinner was fun. <laughs> yeah. All right. Is there much else? Uh, yeah, I want to talk about the characterization of Finrod in this chapter a little bit. Because I think it's really interesting. Um, like, Finrod is very much characterized as someone who values personal loyalty like really really highly like more than political savvy um and i think that's particularly interesting you also get that finrod turgon contrast here where like finrod go make a kingdom and finrod goes to thingol and learns about caves and learns about dwarves and spends all his time wandering and is like cool new things and like delves nargathron and then for turgon it's like turgon build a kingdom and turgon is like a procrastinates on it and b when he's finally motivated it's like i will make an exact replica of the city that we wish we lived in and cannot give up in our nostalgia so, like, that's really interesting, too. Um, and so is the fact that, like, Tergon is explicitly told by Umo to not get too attached to his city or the work of his hands and to expect to be cursed and, like, to have to try and save lives. And, like, Finrod doesn't need to be told that. Finrod built himself a city. And then as soon as Galadriel is like, hey, hey, hey. Hey, you seeing anyone? Um, his answer is like, no, because I need to be ready to die. And also none of my stuff will last long enough to give it to a son. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always thought that it's kind of too far in the opposite direction from Turgon, like giving up the opportunity for happiness in the present because of some distant future is pretty. I don't know. He he just he he gives up on all these things too easily. I think. I think there's there's got to be some sort of middle ground there between the two of them. Um. Yeah, I would agree with you if it wasn't for like the line at the end right like it is said that not until that hour had such cold thoughts ruled him for indeed she whom he had loved was Amarie of the Vanyar and she went not with him into exile so it's basically like like the implication isn't that he's always thinking like that it's that he has this one moment of foresight and previously the only reason he wasn't like enjoying life was you know because he was still getting over his his rough breakup or whatever <laughs> yeah like one of the things it says like foresight came upon Philagan as she spoke so yeah as like it just confirms that it's like you're saying someone I shouldn't 
<laughs> but before that he was like i wish and then it's like wait 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 now that you mention it bad idea <laughs> so yeah. yeah i don't know i guess part of this is informed by by future events too but i think like he does just it feels like he gives up on things too easily it's not all about whether he has a son to pass things on to but about all the other citizens of his realm like yeah he has a greater responsibility than just his own bloodline or his own future which is why that whole thing about like personal loyalties is really interesting because he can look at the greater picture but like to a certain extent i don't think that's his strength at all mm -hmm. like if you consider the fact that in this case like he's considering like his personal friendships with other members of the Noldor like more important like it's more important to not betray them than to uh like inform Thingol or like play politics at all you can also make the argument later that like his immediate personal connection to the house of Beor takes precedent over like the theoretical well-being of his citizens yeah. And it's kind of interesting because it's not really explicit, but he feels like a much more like small, I don't know, personal level thinker than a lot of the other kings. He also spends a heck of a lot of time wandering, which is like good because he like becomes friends with the green elves. He becomes friends with the humans. Like he meets all of these people and gets like a ground level perspective that none of the other elves really get. But at the same time, that's all of his time away from where he's supposed to be king. Yeah. I mean, it is also pretty weird that he's like, the is like, are you seeing anyone? And Finlod's like, no, I'm going to have to die for someone <laughs> whose father will save me, but I haven't met his grandfather's species yet. So I mean, that could happen doesn't... any minute, really. He doesn't know it in that much detail. <laughs> I know, but like, Phil. <laughs> Still. Yeah, in some ways it's kind of like Aragorn, but without the follow-up where you use that worldly experience to, I don't know, lead and, and do things for your people. That's true. Yeah. Except that he does still do a lot. It's just like, his, I don't know, you get, it just feels like his heart's never totally in it. Yeah. Like a king by duty, not by desire. <laughs> that's like Turgon too with a like obviously completely different context like Gondolin is really important um, at the end of the day he accomplishes a lot through his legacy but just things don't turn out maybe as well as they could have yeah yeah I really really like Finrod's character I think he's very interesting and also, I think, like, the way to make his story work extremely well is to, like, canonize the fact that he and Beor are in love, but I'll get more into that later. Like, it's not irrelevant to this part, but it's, like, more relevant later.
I've never really thought about that interpretation that it's his value on personal relationships that informs his decision to uh, like surrounding how he interacts with Dingle. Um, um, I think yeah. I think the way I thought about it before was that that he like the reason he doesn't rat everyone else out and separate himself and his people from it was because he felt some sort of responsibility um, even though they didn't participate they didn't stop it either but I don't know I really like that interpretation of the idea that these personal relationships are really important and that he wants he's kind of trying to please everybody as best he can and keep those relationships as firm as he can I mean the don't like what would have been interesting in that situation like okay I agree that like he was in a hard place but having his brother who has like he, like there's a way to present those things too so when pressed to present the thing he chose not to do it because like he would write everyone out but like he could like you have you have a way to say things like Finrod had this attachment to the other kings which would have softened the blows he's hitting on them because like the like his brother is like now they're all bitches like that's their fault and like bitch and bitch and bitch and bitch and bitch and bitch and like and also that and also that and also that and also that as like he's angry he has resentment toward them whereas Finrod does not have that so like him keeping out prevents Tingol from having a st story a version of the story which is also subjective because like obviously like the angry version is subjective but like the try to soften the blow sorry is also subjective but has a much more positive impact for the relationship which would have been something like yeah so that happened that was very bad uh but they made atonement afterwards they're working on it that's true that's like the... one nuance of this that we didn't really discuss is the fact that it says that Angrod's decision to start speaking angrily about the Feanorians is influenced by the fact that Caranthier was a dick to him. Yeah, also that. So, like, you know, that that's that's interesting, right? Like, some level of this is super, super personal. Like, it's not even like this is also not a political decision, really. This is Angrod being like. Like, well, fuck Karan, like, fuck Karanthir. Um, you want to hear about how awful these guys are? I'll tell you how awful these guys are. Yeah, and like, I will not disagree. Karanthir is a dick, and I haven't seen all of, of how much of a dick he is. But, like, Maedros makes a man, and he's the one in charge of the Feanorian. Uh, Meglo makes song. Despite the fact that he murders cool. so many people, you only ever get I wish I were anywhere else vibes from Maglor somehow. <laughs> um like Finrod would have picked like given much more nuances yeah. to the picture. It's like first it was like it started with Fiano who's dead. So the main problem is removed. The, 
the seven little problems that he like he he spawned everywhere like some of them are less problematic than others and we have to take that into account because the less problematic ones are the one leading the pro like the seven problems um so you know like whereas like it seems to me that Engrod's story is like yes those guys this is a group they're all the same it's just little little fianos seven of them different faces same character which is not true which is not true like midras showed it like i was afraid that midras would be like oh finger thank you for saving me but you kept my hand fuck off but he didn't do that he was like oh we might have overreacted and uh maybe a peace alliance would be better you know like an alliance at least uh and when i think he rebuked karen there when karen is being a dick but i'm not sure uh yeah like karen slap in the face uh, behind tackle behind the face the head um so like with angrod story you get a very one-sided uh, lack of nuance and probably negatively exaggerated tale uh, based on the fact he's angry at Carinthia, which is not fair to the other Fianorian and it's not fair to Fingolfin and his house because some of the Fingolfinian helped but not all of them I think um, like and if I remember the description they kind of helped because they were confused about what happened <laughs> so they were like I guess we're fighting and they went in and then when everything stopped they were like oh shit uh kind of thing is that's why i remembered it take that with a grain of salt um <laughs> can i like interject with something i mean we could just go back i don't know how much but like um yeah like I'm not going to put all the blame on Finrod because it's not fair. He he did what he thought was good, but I think him not saying anything, particularly when he has this desire to build good relationship, he can perfectly say like, yeah, there are bad things, but they made a man. And honestly, I think we can walk through a better relationship knowing that and avoid a second king slain. And I'm pretty sure it's gonna happen anyway. <laughs> At least one, if no more. Uh, now that I've just said that. Um, you know, um, it didn't seem, like it seemed politically savvy to not mention all the bad thing from the get-go, but when confronted to it, it is not politically savvy, I find. Particularly when the next thing that happens is an angry little brother who can't who can't bear the existence of another angry little brother of a group. So basically two people with like very little control over like what the heck is happening in politics are the one that are basically the face of certain groups, which is unfortunate, because as shitty as the Feanorian Oath is, 
that did not deserve to be painting as Karen Therian. That's not who they are. <laughs> Most of them, I think. I, yeah, that's interesting. This is somewhat unrelated, but I feel like there's a, I don't know, dare I say religious-ish theme of penance that's going on here as well. Um, Thingol talks about it in terms of the House of Fingolfin versus the House of Feanor, right? Like Thingol basically argues the House of Fingolfin did bad things, but they paid their penance when they crossed the grinding ice. So I won't, you know, I'll consider them to have been punished um, and won't, you know, hold that against them. The Feanorians, on the other hand, well, you know, they're unrepentant and they haven't been punished. And it's kind of interesting because on the one hand, what a wild view to have. On the other hand, like the text kind of proves him right in the sense that you can see Mithros's arc as an arc of penance as well. Like you can apply that to the Feanorians as well, where Mithros has been punished and gets better because of it. And like the ones that are the worst don't. Yeah. I feel about that. I'm gonna stare at the resident Anglican, see if he has any. I can in fact reside here. Um, <laughs> I mean, so penance isn't as much an Anglican thing as it is a Catholic thing. Um, yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Noting from the ex Catholics. So, oh, okay, maybe we should ask the ex Catholics. <laughs> oh, I'm still saying. But it's. The big thing is you shouldn't be assigning your own penance, generally, um, is, is the Catholic idea. It is assigned to you by the priest in payment of, after post-confession, usually. Yeah? Okay, yeah. we're not talking about that. Um, <laughs> that was a whole other thing. Um, but... So, so the idea of Fingolfin being like we, or more to the point of Angrod being like we've done our penance. Well, well, it's not coming from Angrod. It's yeah. Fingol's determination. Yeah. It, but, yeah. Oh, but like, it's not supposed to be. I don't, I don't know. It, it's kind of <laughs> weird. It's kind of weird religiously. It doesn't follow a strict Catholic acceptance of penance. So. Yeah. It's. I wouldn't say that it's like modeled after it intentionally or anything, but there is sort of like a confession and then terms of penance laid upon them. Sarah, did you have thoughts? You yes, just raised your hand. For Come here. I attention to your whole conversation because I'm doing stuff, but um, I think part of what Fingal's saying about like them having kind of been punished already is about like Feyenoord's betrayal to them too, right? So it's like not just that, like, the walk that they did was difficult, but, like, they, joining the Feanor, like, did the kinslaying, but then Feanor betrayed them. So they've kind of, and that's another sense in which, like, there's, they've suffered, and so the Feanorians are being held more responsible than they have been. Did you guys hear that? Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, and, I mean, it's not... 
it's not Fingal Finn saying he had had he made his penance. It's Thingol saying Fingal Finn paid for what he did. Mm-hmm. So like it it goes with the thing that someone else's choose for you what what yeah. your repentance will be. Um or a little strange. Yeah. I mean, you know, at this point, like uh, <laughs> it's just I mean, he also is the closest to have like a god or like a religious figure because he has million, I suppose. So yeah, <laughs> you could argue that he's the closest to a priest to give penance to people. Uh, but <laughs> I mean, maybe you could argue that Turgun talking directly to Ulmo is something like that too, but don't break my phone. It's funnier than that. Um, I agree. There's a strong theme of penance in that. And I don't like it. <laughs> because you don't become a better person by suffering equally or like semi-equally to what you did. You walk on becoming a better person by like, well, first not doing the bad thing you did again. Which, to be fair, Fingolfin does not yet i don't know if he does it but to this point he has not done it yet Uh, (laughs) and um like it's also kind of unhealthy in the sense that it makes other people it puts other people in control of how much you can be forgiven and that means that they can retain this acceptance that you made your penance forever. And in a way, that's what happened with Medros, because like Medros has a change of hers, but he's still called like unrepentant. Not true. I think he would be repentant, but they don't let him. That, like no matter I, I like in this sentencing, he's basically thing or he's basically saying no matter what the Fernoyan do, I will hold that against them. No, but like and 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 it's not fair. Like yes, some of the Fernoyan are a bitch, and Fernoyan himself is like the biggest asshole, and the orcs kind of predispose them all to the bitchy thing. But some of them walk on it or around it as much as possible. And it's not fair to continuously blame them for some things they try to actually fix. Or if they can't fix it because some people literally died and they can't go back to Valinor, like they try to like do good things to overbalance the bad things they've done. And so with the system of penance, they can't ever be considered good and have good relationship and be forgiven because it's not in their hands. You know? Yeah. And that's not fair. And I don't like it. I mean, that's the same problem I have with penance in general, so not only this in my religion.
<laughs> yeah. Those are my thoughts. Yeah. I think Thingle is a very all or nothing guy. That's one of the things that this starts. Yeah. He has that in common with Fano. He does kind of have that in common with Fano. Like that's also what I was, I think, trying to say with like making that a personal thing earlier, is that like you're a king. Those are politics. It's not all or nothing. It's not only good or bad. There are nuances, there are situation, there are context, and you have to be able to understand that. And your wife does, so why don't you listen to her? Um, you know, it's frustrating. He has a very smart, very wise wife to help him govern, and he do not listen. And he keep things like all or nothing. It's that like that's not how you rule. You don't. <laughs> that's not how you rule. The Noldor just showed you that's not how you rule. Fiano died after doing stupid shit because that's how he saw the world. Read the books. No, I'm joking. I know the book doesn't exist at the time, but still. <laughs> Listen to the ballads. <laughs> No, they're sung in the wrong language. That's true. Um, okay, anyway, we should wrap up because it's past two. I feel like Eloise is going to have a lot of Mithros feelings in this book. And they're going to be very different feelings. <laughs> at very Listen, different. he gave me hope and I'm pretty sure he's going to destroy it again because he's still under the freaking oath of no matter what, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> but that, that is also why I find him a compelling character, so I get it. It's like, how do you, how do you become a better person if you throw a freaking oath to not be? Like, <laughs> yeah. like tough choice, dude. My thoughts on my those are like, he probably could have been a good person if Feanor had actually released his sons from the oath when he died, rather than doubled down on how they have to fulfill it. They just confirm Fano is a terrible person and I hate him. And he deserves everything he owes for. 